The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 14, verse 12 through 21. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed a Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of two of his disciples, and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it, found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, I truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread in the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This is the word of the Lord. And this morning we're going to be learning two things from Jesus, that if you really believe them, they would absolutely revolutionize your life. Now, I know that's a big statement, and you've probably been told for several weeks that if you make these New Year's resolutions, they will change your life, right? And you've probably already lost your hope in those New Year's resolutions. Uh, Our culture is all about do these things or buy these things and you will be happy or it will change your life. So when I say that Jesus is teaching us here two things that can change your life, it probably sounds a little infomercially, right? I I think that's a word. If it's not, it should be. Uh, But the difference between buy this product or do these things and your life will be different and believe these things is that our beliefs determine what we do. What we believe influences what we love, influences our desires, our decisions. So our beliefs are, let's just say they're the bedrock where our entire life is built upon. So if you really want to change your life, you don't start with your actions, all right? You don't start the outside in, you start inside out. You start with your beliefs. And today, Jesus gives us two things that if you really believe, they will completely change your life. You will be less anxious. You will have a peace in your life when other people are freaking out. You will be more humble What do I mean by that? You will be able to laugh at yourself and actually enjoy your imperfections. But at at the same time, as being more humble and able to laugh at yourself, at the same time, you're going to have more confidence and you'll be more bold in your faith without being bossy or controlling. You'll be more willing and able to forgive. Forgive people who have wronged you for, you know, they've done really hurtful things to you and you've maybe unforgivable things you think, but... If you believe what we're going to teach today, you're going to be able to forgive these people and move on with your life uh, with a heart that's not cold and hardened and with walls built up around it, but a heart that's open and others focused. All in all, I'm I'm telling you, if, if we really believe the two things that Jesus is trying to teach us today in this passage, I know there's a lot of baggage that comes with this term, and I'm going to use it a lot because I'm prepping for a whole sermon series coming up in 2016. But all in all... If you believe these things, you're going to be happy. You're going to be happy. You're going to be happy people. All of these things that I'm, all of these are just repercussions or implications from believing what Jesus is teaching us this morning. So without further ado, I'm going to jump right in. We're going to start in verse 12. So if you have your Bibles, open up to chapter 14, verse 12. You can find it in our app. Sacred City has our own app. If you have a smartphone, type in Sacred City. You can find our app there. Or if you have a Bible app, open it up. Or if you don't have a Bible, don't have a Bible app. We've even thrown some Bibles out on the floor here randomly. And you can 
I would like to see people scurry for those. Uh, but you can find those. So we're going to start with chapter uh, 14, verse 12. I'm going to go verse by verse through that this morning. Chapter 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, there's a lot in this statement that we have to understand, okay? This verse 12 here sets the stage for us to understand what Jesus is about to do and teach. It's the first day of unleavened bread. We all know what that's about, right? So I don't need to explain that. Uh, I'm joking. None of us do, right? The first day of unleavened bread is, is the Passover. Um, and, and just so you know, it was, <laughs> this is funny. In their day of, re- in their reckoning is Nisan 14 for us. It means it is a Thursday in March or April, okay? This is why our Easter fluctuates every year, but it's, uh, it's the Thursday of March and eight, April, so we know that. And the Passover that they're about to celebrate is the most important day of the year for Israel. It began the annual celebration of remembering God's sovereign work in delivering the Israelites from the Egyptian slavery 1,500 years before. Okay, think about how powerful Christmas is in our society, right? For the, for, for the two months leading up for Christmas, or some of you, for the six months leading up to Christmas, everything changes, right? Decorations change, music change, clothing changes, your house, house you, you know, a lot of people put lights on their house, everything, our liturgy changes, right? Everything moves forward towards Christmas. Well, it was the same in their day and age uh, with Passover. Every single good Jew celebrated the Passover with their family, okay? It was a tradition, think about this, that had been passed down for 1,500 years. And the celebration began on that Thursday by taking a lamb to the temple and sacrificing it. And then bringing that lamb back to your house or wherever you're at and preparing it in a special way And having this dinner with your family of unleavened bread, of the roasted lamb, of bitter herbs, greens, stewed fruit, and wine, okay? Um, This was all part of the Passover. It was a long celebration lasting from the evening until, until midnight at night. And Jerusalem was the only place that you could celebrate this. So you couldn't just celebrate it like we celebrate Christmas wherever you want in your homes. Everyone, no matter where they lived, around the world, had to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so all of the Jews would come to Jerusalem for this night, for this day, and then the week-long celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, I want you to think about this, what this does to a city. If you've ever been in Iowa City or lived in Iowa City, the entire city changes, uh, really, when students come back to school and on home game days, right? Think about a home game day. The city just triples. You've got however many thousand people rushing the stadium, commerce increases, traffic increases, everything kind of gets crazy. Well, think of that, um, the city of Jerusalem. The city would at least triple in size. You're talking thousands thousands of people dragging their lambs to the temple, all right? So thousands of lambs in a city street, you know, It's a mess, right? It's a mess. And commerce increases. And Jerusalem was like that for an entire week. But here's the deal. If you didn't own a home, they didn't have like, you know, hotels, like massive hotels. So if you didn't didn't own a home in Jerusalem and you were coming to Jerusalem for a week, one of the things that the locals would do is they would rent out a room in their house for travelers to come and celebrate the Passover. All right? It's one way for the locals to make some money. Uh, People who were residents in Jerusalem would rent out their rooms for the travelers and they would make a good profit. So this is why Jesus now, he says, or his disciples say to him, where are we going to celebrate the Passover? So it's a given. We're Jews. We're going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Where are we going to go, Jesus? You're a wanted man, right? The chief priests are already plotting for his downfall and his demise. Where are we going to go in this bustling city to celebrate Passover? where are we going to have this meal together? Now look at verse 13. And Jesus sent two of his disciples 
And he said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now this is already kind of code, okay? Men, um, they didn't carry water pots, okay? They would carry like these big water bags and stuff, but the women carried the water pots. So already this is kind of like code. You're gonna walk in, you're gonna see this guy doing this thing that's out of place, a man carrying a water pot, and you're gonna follow him. He will meet you, follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepare for us. So Jesus had either, there's two things here. We're not, Mark doesn't really tell us, okay? So Jesus has either already made preparations for this man in secret. So the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, he said, hey man, I'm gonna be coming in a week or so and I need you to prepare this room for us. He's either made these like kind of back, uh, back alley deal with this guy to prepare this room or it's just a supernatural uh, act of God that God providentially set this whole thing up. We don't really know, but the meaning of it is still the same. Here, and this is gonna change the way we interpret this entire text. Okay, this is important. Mark, the author here, wants us to know that Jesus is in absolute control of this situation. All right, that's important for us to know. There are some who look at what is about to happen and they say, here's where the wheels came off of Jesus' life and ministry. Here, Jesus came preaching the gospel of this new kingdom and, and he, was gonna be this, he thought he was gonna be this new king and he's gonna take over and he's gonna you know, get Israel out of the subjugation to Rome and he was gonna just dominate the world and take over and this is where Jesus' plans failed. This is where he, he missed it. That's what many people teach. But what Mark wants to show us is this is not where Jesus loses control and his aspirations die. Jesus is still in absolute control over this whole entire situation. Look at verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Jesus is still in absolute control, right? He is in control. Go find the water pot guy. Follow the water pot guy. He'll give you a room. In the room, that's where you're going to celebrate. And that's where you're going to prepare for us the Passover celebration. Everything happened exactly how Jesus would say it would happen. He's in complete control. And now they go to prepare the Passover. Okay, important background. What do they have to do to prepare the Passover? And I think... This has been one of the greatest joys of being able to preach this to you is the study I have to do, the background study I have to do. Many of us, when we read this unleavened bread, Passover, we might have a a, a brief connection back into Exodus 12 and the Passover. We don't really know what's going on, how liturgical, what we're doing on our Sunday gathering, how we stand and we recite something and then the reader reads something and we respond back. That's liturgy, okay? Okay. And the Passover celebration that Jesus celebrates here is liturgical. Everything was said and done the exact same way for 1,500 years, right? And listen to this liturgy. This is, it would, it would, the, the meal would begin from evening until midnight, okay? It was long, joyous celebration that had a very specific liturgy. The Psalms it would begin with, the, or part of it would be the singing of the Psalms, of Psalm 113 to 118, often called the Hallel, okay? They would sing all of these songs. Uh, they would begin with the first three, and they would end with the last three. And I'm going to get into some of that, the specifics of that in a little bit. The meal was divided into four parts, um, each one concluding with the drinking of a cup of wine. Let me just, I just want that to sit on you for a minute. This meal with Jesus, had four cups of wine involved. I'm just saying, I'm not saying anything, I'm just teaching you what the Bible says. This one meal was a joyous celebration, right? And it had four cups of wine involved in this celebration. I don't know how big those cups were, but they were cups, okay? A blessing, now this is interesting. So this is how the night would begin. The father or the head of the house would stand up and pronounce a blessing, right? May God's face shine upon you, something like that from the Old Testament. And then a child, usually the oldest child, would stand up and would say this, why is this night different from other nights? 
that began the liturgy. Why is this night's night different than other nights? And the father would read this section of scripture. It's from, I'm going to read it to you. It's Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 9. This is what, so the child would say, Dad, why is this night different from other nights? And this is what dad would say. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father. He's speaking of Abraham. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a great nation, a nation great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So that was the response. It was a recitation from the book of Deuteronomy of God's redemption of Israel out of Egyptian slavery. It was a kind of a, a, a recitation of the story of God in small form. It was reminding them who they are, who their identity were, was. They're the people of God who's been rescued by this faithful God who reached down into Egyptian slavery and res, rescued them. So there's this litur- liturgical aspect of the Passover that they're experiencing. And then the father would pronounce a benediction over each of the various foods that symbolized the bitter captivity in Egypt and the hardships and, the, and then the blessings of the exodus of leaving Egypt. The unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, the greens, the stewed fruit, the roasted lamb, all has significance. And all of the family, any guests that are with the family, they're all invited to partake of this meal. And then at midnight, it concludes with the singing of Psalm 116 and 118 and the drinking of the fourth cup of the wine. Now, why do I get into all this? Because look at hap- what happens in verse 18. Let me, let me start with 17. And when it was evening, he came with the 12, okay? It's evening, Passover celebration is beginning. We have this very specific liturgy. And as they were reclining at table and eating, I said this last week, that the heights of the tables were about this high right here. And they would push their feet into the table and they would recline away from the table and they would enjoy a long, joyous meal with their family and their friends in this way. Jesus said to them, while they're reclining at table and eating, Jesus said to them, truly, and that's it, anytime Jesus says truly, it really means listen up, pay attention. I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, why is, that, why is this significant? After 1,500 years of every single year, excuse me, performing the exact same liturgy every single Passover night, this night is different. Jesus breaks with 1,500 years of tradition. He interrupts the normal liturgical flow and he drops a bomb into their midst. This is the closest of Jesus' followers. Right? In a sense, this is his band of brothers. This is the ones who are, they've been traveling with him and walking with him and, and living with him and eating with him. He's been doing miracles in their midst for three years and they get this special occasion up in the upper room and it's locked and it's under secrecy because there's all this threat uh, to Jesus' life. And they begin the liturgical flow and they're eating the lamb and they're drinking the wine and and all of a sudden Jesus drops this bomb, one of you will betray me. Now, Mark has already told us who this is. Most of us already know this is Judas. Judas has already made a deal with the enemies of Jesus to turn him over and to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. We talked about it last week. Jesus already knows, it's not a surprise to him, he already knows who it is that's going to betray him. And Jesus isn't surprised. He isn't taken aback or taken off guard by this. But we should ask ourselves, 
why the secrecy? Why does Jesus go, one of you will betray me? Why doesn't Jesus just save this for later? You know, any managers know confrontation is better behind closed doors alone, right? Take old Judas off to the side and go, Judas, you're about to do something really dumb, bro. This is not going to go well for you. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, in the midst of all the other disciples, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me tonight. One of the 12. Now, think about this. First off, it's kind of, you could, it could look a little cruel to the other disciples. Why doesn't Jesus just go, Judas is a snake in the grass, right? He's a wolf in the hen house. I'm talking about him. Take him outside and handle it right now, right? You know Peter would have. You know Peter would have. You know James and John, they're calling down lightning on him. They're ready to deal with it. Judas, right? And it's interesting. None of them, none of them else, nobody pointed fingers at Judas because he, he he's always looked sneaky. I knew something was up with this guy, right? He always had that eye twitch. I knew something was wrong with him, right? Nobody suspects Nobody's pointing fingers. Look how, and I think, this is, I think this is a key to helping us understand why Jesus drops this bomb, why Jesus sets this whole thing up this way. Look how they respond. Verse 19. They began to be sorrowful. So in this midst of this joyful celebration, they started being concerned and sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is, is it I? One of you is going to betray me. Is it me? Many early manuscripts say, surely not I. It's it's not, couldn't be me. Jesus throws this question out there, and it's a heavy question, and it it really changes the atmosphere of the dinner. And and this question, once it comes off the lips of Jesus, really just breathes this introspection. It creates this self-awareness or self-examination. The disciples start to go, it's not me. I couldn't be the one who betrays him, could I? Is it me? Is it me? And look what Jesus says. He said to them, it is one of the 12. It's nobody out there. You guys think the threat is the religious leaders, right? It's Rome, they're the ones that are going to come and attack us. They're going to break up our band. They're going to squash our little rebellion. They're going to snuff out this kingdom that God's doing. You think it's the threat's out there? No, 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 no. Jesus says the threat's not out there. The threat's in here. It's one of my 12, my closest. Now, this is the first thing that Jesus is teaching us this morning, that if you believe it, I believe it will change your life forever. And here it is. You are capable of far worse than you think. Jesus here is dropping a bomb that says everyone is capable of doing things that they think I would never do. I would never in a million years betray Jesus. I would never in a million years do whatever. Jesus is saying, no, 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 everyone, even those who are the closest to me, those who have watched me perform signs and wonders, they've watched him raise the dead. They've watched him multiply loaves and fishes. They've watched him. Some of them have walked on water. They've watched him do, they've watched him silence the storm, speak to it, be still, and it stops. And yet, these who are the closest to him, someone is still capable of betraying him. And what's, we can kind of lose sight of, one of them betrays him. All of them abandon him. By the end of this night, it's not just one who walks away. One betrays him. One gets paid money, right? One turns him over and betrays him with a kiss. We're going to learn about that in a few weeks. But all of them walk away. All of them run. All of them abandon Jesus. 
This is a sobering realization for those who've had it. This is what the gospel, kind of the first step of the gospel teaches us. That you're, at, and we've said it in our liturgy this morning, you're actually worse <laughs> than you think. We are all worse than we think. We all have the potential in us to do things that we think we would never do. Given the right circumstances, right? We all have the capability of doing things that we say with our mouth right now, there's no way I would never do that. That's way below me. I would never do it. Now, some of you might go, no, 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 I I get it. I believe that. That's nothing new. I'm worse than I thought. Nothing new. Really? Because here's what I'm going to push on a little bit. If you really believe that, if you really believed that you had the capability of betraying Jesus like these apostles, you had the capability of, of being worse than you thought possible, you wouldn't have any problems forgiving someone who's wronged you. Think about it. Why do you have a problem forgiving someone? Here's step one. You look at that person. Miroslav Volv says, when 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 I'm acting in unforgiveness, when I don't forgive someone, here's the two things that happen. I, I exclude that person from the community of sinners, or the, or the community of, of the saints, and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. What, what does that mean? It means this. One of the first things you do when you are unforgiving someone is you look at them, whatever they've done, lied to you, cheated on you, hurt you, abused you, and you say, I can't believe they did that. How can a person do that? I would never do that to a person. Do you see what you're doing right there? You don't believe that we're all capable of doing far worse than we ever think because what you did in that moment, you said, I can't believe they did that. And what you also did in that moment is you said, I am not capable of doing that. How could a person do that? You're excluding yourself from being a sinner. I'm not that bad. And then you're excluding that person from being a a forgiven sinner by saying, I can't believe they could do that. See, so if you really believed that we were worse than we thought, that we are capable of doing horrible things, you would be a really radically gracious, kind, and forgiving person. You would be understanding. You wouldn't be shocked when bad things happen. You wouldn't be shocked when people, even Christians, hurt you. Jesus is teaching us today that if you, any of us, all of us, If we were at this meal with Jesus this night, we would have behaved the exact exact same way. We look at it and we're like, what's up with these guys? What wimps? Right? The sword comes out and, 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 and they take Jesus and they all run away. And Judas betrays him. What wimp? Jesus is showing us we're all capable of doing this. Given the right circumstances, we would have done the exact same thing. And some of us, you found this out the hard way. Some of us, we're already old enough in our life to do things that we thought we would never do. There were some things that we've done that we didn't think 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 20 years ago, I'm not even capable of doing that. And here we are later in life and we say, I've done the very things I swore I would never do. And one of the things that when I'm counseling people who have done this, one of the things that I hear over and over and over when they do something they never dreamed they would do is, I just can't move past this. I just, it's rotting my life. It's ruining my relationships. I don't know what to do. I can't move past it. I just can't forgive myself. See, this is why worshiping any other God is unforgiving. It's, it ruins our life. But even you. See, what, what you're doing in that situation, let me just break it down just a little bit. I can't forgive myself. What does that mean? My opinion is ultimate. There's some of us in here 
who are proud enough, we don't really care what other people think, but I'll tell you who we do care about, my opinion of myself, right? I don't care if lazy people say I'm mean. I look at you and go, because you're lazy. You look at me and you think I'm mean or you think I'm a hard worker or you think of this. We, we dismiss it. I'll tell you whose opinion really matters. My own. So if I've done so, if listen, if I have a standard for my life, right, here's my standard, and I break my own standard, I do something I thought I would never do, I say, and then it just ruins me. Why? Because I can't give myself grace because I'm an ungracious God to myself. I'm an ungracious ruler to myself. And I say, you should have known better. How could you? I can't believe it. Your mama raised you better than that. You believe the gospel. You preach the gospel. Shame on you. I can't believe you did that. And I beat myself up and I beat myself up and I beat myself up. Why? Because I'm an unmerciful God. And my opinion is higher than anybody else's opinion. It's pride. So when someone, and someone could see, they don't, it doesn't come off like, like I just come off all the time. Other people seem very low and very humble and I just can't forgive myself. I just can't get over it. It's always the same thing. My standard I broke my own standard, and I can't give myself any grace. But what we learn here from Jesus, see, here's the two things we got to hold in intention. I'm worse than I thought. I, I'm capable of doing horrible things, things that I thought I was incapable of doing. I'm capable of those things. But at the same time, Jesus is merciful, and Jesus is kind, and Jesus is gracious. This is the second thing we need to learn and believe from Jesus this morning. Jesus loves sinners to death. This, Jesus sits down and eats his last meal, drinks his last cup of wine, with men he knows are about to betray him. Judas is right next to him. Can you imagine? I'd be giving him the stink eye all night. I'd be like, get to the foot of the table. Don't, I don't even want to see you. Get out of here. Right? Jesus welcomes sinners. Every man around this table, and what we're going to see in two weeks, is they all run away from him. Right? But they all, but Peter, I'll never do it. Never, never will I. Never, never. No matter what. Jesus welcomes them around his table. He does it willingly. This is, again, all going exactly according to his plan. So, Jesus, see, listen, here's what happens. We suffer. We're mistreated and we like are shocked by it because we don't believe that even our best friend, even our wife, even our husband, even our kids, even our boss, even your pastor, because we believe those people aren't really sinners and they're not really capable of sinning. When they do sin against us, we're shocked by it and we get wounded and, and we don't know how to deal with it. Jesus isn't shocked when Jesus calls his disciples Three years ago on the Sea of Galilee, when he said, come follow me, he's, look, he, he's looking and he can see three years in advance and he knows these are the men who will betray me. I'm calling sinners. I'm calling men who are going to betray me and I'm going to live my life and give my life to them for three whole years and ultimately give my very life for sinners. For some of us, we have this notion that when you come to Christ, all of a sudden, you stop sinning. It's ridiculous. It's, it creates this legalism in your heart that causes you to perform and to pretend, and then it causes you to get really shocked when somebody in your missional community sins against you. And there's nothing in the, te- in the scripture that teaches we come to Christ and we stop sinning. Do we fight our sin? Do we resist our sin? Does the spirit work in us and sanctify us and cause us to grow and be more holy? Absolutely. But do we ever stop sinning? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. 
So this does not surprise Jesus. Some of you just need to hear that. Your sin does not surprise Jesus. It surprises you. I can't believe I did that. I thought I was beyond that. It doesn't surprise Jesus. Jesus knows they're worse than they think. But he also shows them that he loves them far more than they can even imagine. You know Peter. Peter's already showed us many times. Jesus, he picked me out because I was killing it. I was a top fisherman. I was crushing it. Peter shows this pride and this arrogance all through the Gospels, right? And he's going to show it in a couple weeks. You know what, Jesus? This reminds me of somebody on the show. I can't even remember. I'm not gonna go. He, he looks around at everybody else. You know what? It does remind me of Dwight Schrute. Actually, I've just got to say it. Right? He looks at everybody else in the office right, and goes, they'll all fall away, but not this guy. Right? Peter, that's what Peter does. Peter looks at all the apostles and goes, they're all going to probably walk away. It's probably true. Did you forget about me? Not me. Not even a chance, right? Now, here's where things get crazy. In my opinion, they get crazy. That's the adjective I want to use. As this meal is coming to a close. So Jesus changes the atmosphere. He wants this self-examination. He wants everyone to be going, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Am I the one? Am I going to betray him? Is it me? He wants this happen. So if you're thinking like that, That's good this morning. Are you examining your heart and see, I'm capable of doing things that I've never thought I would do or I've already done things that I never thought I would do? I've been unmerciful toward myself. I have a struggle and a difficult time forgiving myself or forgiving other people. That's the atmosphere Jesus wanted to create. That's the atmosphere I wanted to create. Now listen, what's interesting is in Psalm 118, okay, Jesus sings. They sang these songs every time. And this song, this him from Psalm 118, Psalm 118, verse 27. It just lodged itself in my heart this week. As they're about to leave, they're, they're going to drink, you know, they're, as they're about to leave, this is what Jesus sings in Psalm 118, 27. He says this, the Lord is God shining upon us. Take the sacrifice and bind it with cords on the altar. Take the sacrifice and bind it with cords on the altar. Now listen, for 1,500 years, when every Jew sang that song at the end of the Passover, what they meant, they were singing about the Passover sacrifice. Take the lamb, put it on the altar, bind it with cords, sacrifice it to the Lord. But this night, When Jesus sings it, he's singing about himself. He's saying, bring forth your sacrifice. Bind him to the altar. See, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 5 says this, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus, as the night closes and everybody's doubting and everybody's wondering, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Jesus sings about himself and he says, bring forward, God, your sacrifice and bind me to the altar. And it's not going to be bound with straps or cords or ropes. Jesus is going to be bound to a cross with nails. And he sings about his own death and his own sacrifice. I imagine this night came back in their memory the apostles, after they betrayed him. It's so moving to me. (coughs) At this moment in time, every Passover celebration for 1,500 years finds its culmination. Why did blood, why in Exodus 12, when they put lamb's blood on the door, why did that cause the angel of death to pass over and not kill the child? Why did that blood have any power? That blood had power because blood, In the plan of God, in the economy of God, that blood was a sign of Christ's blood. The only reason any sacrifice ever could cover any sin was because of the culmination of that sacrifice in Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. He's what the Passover was all about. 
That's why we don't celebrate Passover anymore. Jesus was the culmination of it. He was our Passover lamb. This is the new exodus. Jesus delivers us from bondage. This is the new Passover over sin. Jesus, his blood covers us now. Romans 5.8, again, we've even read it this morning in our liturgy, says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see what Jesus is teaching us here? We are all far worse than we dare to think. We're all capable of doing terrible things and turning our backs on Jesus. And yet, Jesus knew it, and Jesus willingly dies for his betrayers. You know what Jesus says from the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I want to go, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean? You told them. You told them they were going to betray you. You told them you were going to die. They, those know what they're doing. Some of them know what they're doing. Jesus says they don't know what they're doing. Jesus, see, we don't get it. We don't think we're capable. We don't think our sin is that big. We think maybe God wants our little obedience from us, or maybe we go to church once or twice, you know, God will be happy with us. No, no, no. God is happy with you because of the perfect obedience of Jesus. God smiles on you because of the perfect obedience of Jesus. I read in my devotions this morning from Psalm 18, he, he, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Now, Jesus doesn't delight in me because I'm a good guy. I'm a sinner. I'm capable of doing terrible things. He delights in us because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. We are worse than we think, but simultaneously, we are more loved than we could ever imagine. Listen, these two beliefs held together will absolutely change your life. What does that mean? What's another way they'll change my life? If I really believe, I've already given you some, but if I really believe I'm worse than I think possible, right, or or I'm capable of things, when someone says, um, when someone confronts me on something, right, I misspoke, or I was rude, or I was unloving or uncaring, my first response would be to go, okay, I didn't see that. You're probably right. Will you forgive me? But how many of us really believe that? How many of us really do that? When someone says that was unloving or that was unkind or why did you leave that there or why did you do that? Especially your spouse, right? Why'd you walk by that 10 times? I know you smell that diaper. I know that. Stuffed up, real stuffed, real stuffed. Right? Cold going around. Why? Why do we get defensive? I didn't mean that. I didn't do that. That's not what I meant. If you knew my heart. No, 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 no. That's not what I did. Why do we get defensive? We get defensive because we don't believe the first part of this truth. We don't believe we're really capable of doing that. We're not that type of person. Now, that's the first part. Second part, if you really believe that simultaneously being capable of doing horrible things and being a sinner but simultaneously you're loved outside of your own performance. What will that do? Think about this. How often do you perform to get people to accept you, to get people to love you, to get people to like you? How often do you, and it says dance for your dinner, right? How often do you kind of try to keep up pretense, This is not a church that does that, by the way. I hope we don't promote that. We all do that, but we don't promote that, right? So if you tell me, you know, if I ask you how how things are going and you tell me three times in a row, oh, I'm blessed and highly favored, brother, I'm gonna look at you like a weirdo. I'm like, he's lying. He's lying. I'm gonna talk to his wife. That's what I'm gonna do. He's lying. Why? Because we struggle, because we're sinners, because if we're really engaging on this earth with other sinners, we're going to be hurt, We're going to be hurting others. We're going to need the gospel. I don't have to keep this pretense up that everything is just sunshine and roses for me all week long. Right? We don't have to pretend. We don't have to perform. We don't have to walk around with pretense because we're loved and accepted by God, by Christ, not based on my performance, but on Jesus's. See, this is 
the life-changing power of the gospel. This is what we preach day in and day out at Sacred City. This is what Martin Luther said, preach the gospel and do it every day and beat it into their heads if necessary. This is what we need to believe down into our bones, that we are simultaneously sinners and righteous because of Jesus. Will you, can I just say, you can make all the New Year's resolutions in the world. There's nothing that can change you like this. Nothing. It gets down under all your layers, behind all your scars, and it gets into your heart and it changes you from the inside out. And you become a happy person, like a free person, willing to, listen, I, uh, some of us are so afraid of making mistakes that we're unwilling to open our mouths and invite a neighbor over or to share the gospel with someone because we just think we'll do it wrong. We'll do it wrong. Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. You probably will do it wrong. All of us do it wrong. But God in his sovereign mercy, he uses the way we do it wrong. And just, let me just use an example. Here we go. I've got my neighbors. I have a neighbors that have lived in the neighborhood since it was built, okay? They're really, so she's really old. And um, we, my, my kids and I, you know, we talk to her. She's always out in the, we've got good relationship with them. But honestly, uh, you know, I've, I've never invited her to church. I think I, maybe I've mentioned it to her once. Uh, I know she does go to an, another church in town. Um, and I just always think, oh, she, you know, she's just really old and we're really, so many people are so young at our church. It's gonna be hard. And she's got this, I'm probably sharing too much here. I don't know. Anyways, she's got, she's got a boyfriend who's, who's older and he's got a, and I was talking with him and he's got a PhD in philosophy. And immediately, I was kind of like, better watch what I say around this guy. And I didn't know what, I, I, you know, I've always just, you know, kind of like, ooh, tiptoed around him a little bit. And I thought, you know what? I finished the book. I said, I'm going to take, take the book over. And I was like, oh, Lord, this could go really bad. Um, and I gave him the book, and I just said, here, here it is. Merry Christmas. Take it. Oh, and I'm, I'm like, oh, Lord, you know, use this feeble attempt. And yesterday, <clears throat> or two days ago, he knocked on the door, came in, and uh, he said, hey. And he had this packet in his hand. He goes, <laughs> he goes, hey, I read your book, and here's my response. And it was a packet, and I was like, thank you for this. And he said, can I have another one? I want to give to someone. I'm like, yes, you can, actually. <laughs> Would you like 10? Here we go. Uh, he, and I said to him, he's like, come on down. I'm going to give, and he, he, he's retired now and he builds these little things and he built me, he built like this little feng shui rock garden skep. It was cool. This little, and he gave it to me. I said, really? I said, thank you for that. I get back and I read his review and, and he's got this review in it and I read his review and it's positive and then he gives me this book by this other philosopher and all this kind of stuff and, and I was absolutely blown away. I was absolutely blown away. Now, he had some critiques on it, and I, I accepted that, but literally, I was kind of scared of this guy, right? I'm a, you know, I'm a nobody, right? Writing this little book, and I'm gonna send it off to this guy, and he's just gonna, and I'm just scared. I'm gonna rip it, he's gonna rip it apart. And Amanda knows, I was like, you know, I'd see him, in the, I'd see him outside, I'm like, I knew I'd give it to him, and I just was like, oh, I'm gonna avoid him. Just waiting for him to rip me apart. And God used it, a little feeble 100-page book, right, from nobody, and God uses it in this guy's life, and the guy, he writes a response to it, and now he's, he wants to talk about it and, and chop it up, and I'm excited to give me another book to read, so I'm encouraged by it. Listen, this is how God uses it. This is why in the book of Acts, one of the first things they say about the, the apostles as they're preaching the gospel, these are unlearned, uneducated men. How, how are they doing this? If you believe the gospel, right, you are aware that God can use his weak, God uses weak, in our unarticulate people. He can use your feeble attempts. He can use, and it gives, so the gospel gives you this boldness to say it, even if you might say it in not the best way. That's what I'm trying to say. Got away from my notes there for a long time. Sorry about that. So this is, this is it. I'm going to invite you into it this morning. Maybe if this is your first time here, this is what Christianity is all about believing these two things, 
that I'm worse and yet loved by Christ. And it changes me on the inside out and it frees me to live in a brand new way. Brand new way. Now, here's my last thought. As I was thinking about this text, the saddest part of this text is not that Judas betrayed Jesus. It's that Judas never repented. Listen, when Judas did what he did, he couldn't live with himself anymore. Remember, I just can't forgive myself. That's where Judas lived. He didn't think he was capable of betraying the Son of God, but when he did, he, it, grace was there, forgiveness was there. But he didn't, he couldn't forgive himself. He couldn't repent. He couldn't go to a gracious Jesus with his sins. He'd broken his own standard and it was more than he could bear. So, G, so, so Judas, this is the saddest part of this whole story. One of, Jesus, one of Jesus' own disciples refused to repent and trust Jesus as his Passover lamb. Would the blood of Jesus cover betrayal? Absolutely. The Passover lamb that has been sacrificed, would that be sufficient to forgive someone who's going to betray? Absolutely. But Judas refused to repent. I pray there's none of us in this room this morning. No matter what you've done, no matter if you can't forgive yourself for it, you thought it was way beyond you, it was worse than you ever imagined, and you can't forgive yourself, the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Christ's blood can and does cover it if you repent and confess your sins to him this morning. Let us come to Jesus this morning, our Passover lamb. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your kindness. I thank you for sending Jesus, who is our Passover lamb. It's a simple thought. We're worse than we think possible, but we're more loved than we could ever imagine. It's simple. Many of us have heard it before, so we go check and yet, if we really believe it, the implications run deep. What kind of people would we be if we really believed this? What would our church be like? What would our city be like? What kind of neighbors would we be? What kind of parents would we be? What kind of husband or wife would we be? What kind of employee or employer would we believe if we really believe this? God, I pray that through the power of your spirit, you would work it out in us. As we live in community, as we're on mission to our city, that you would continue to work it out in us. Work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it's the Lord, it's you who are working within us. You are the one doing it. We give you the praise for that. And as we come to your table this morning, let us examine our own hearts. As the apostles, is it I, is it I? I think if we have any self-awareness, we know we've betrayed you. We've abandoned you in times. We've walked away from you at times. We worship other, other gods, even ourself at times. And yet you want to sup with us. You want to eat with us. You want to give us your body that was broken for us and your blood that was shed for us. And so let us take and eat it out of grace this morning, not because we deserve it, but because you're so merciful and kind. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.